0: As Black Lives Matter protests spread around the world in recent weeks, the NHK Sunday international news program Sekai no Ima, or The World Now, aired an animated video intended to explain the reasons behind the protests to a curious Japanese
1: audience.
0: In the video, a cartoonishly muscular narrator speaks in a rough, gangster-like language, decrying the income disparity between black and white Americans, along with the disproportionate impacts on unemployment rates in black communities as a result of coronavirus. Never is there any mention of systemic police violence against black Americans. But the problems didn't stop there. In the background, one curiously barefoot figure in a sleeveless blue suit and fedora, strums a guitar as black protesters move in unison amidst burning cars and scenes of urban destruction. These offensive caricatures prompted even the US ambassador to Japan to officially state on Twitter, while we understand NHK's intent to address complex racial issues in the United States, it's unfortunate that more thought and care didn't go into this video. The caricatures used are offensive and insensitive. NHK later removed the video conceding only, we apologize for our lack of consideration and for making people feel uncomfortable. But for many observers, the NHK video was only the latest in a long line of offensive depictions of blackness dating back hundreds of years that have shaped and perpetuated anti-black attitudes in Japan. When were the first depictions of blackness introduced to Japan? And how did they reflect anti-black attitudes around the world at the time? How did these historical depictions shape anti-black attitudes in Japan? And what does the NHK video illustrate about not only Japanese misconceptions of the Black Lives Matter movement, but also enduring anti-blackness in Japan? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on historical depictions of blackness in Japan, I talked with Dr. Reginald Jackson, Associate Professor of Japanese Literature and Performance at the University of Michigan and Director of the University of Michigan Center for Japanese Studies. Dr. Jackson is the author of Staging Enslavement, Subjection, Exertion, and the Gestural Economies of Medieval No-Performance, forthcoming in the Journal of Japanese Studies. I started by asking Dr. Jackson to place the recent NHK video into the broader context of historical depictions of blackness in Japan.
1: Sure, yeah, I can certainly try. My recent research is really on slavery and performance, and There's different ways to historicize what we're talking about now. So I think the most kind of common touchstones are happening in the Meiji period, and folks like John Russell and Will Bridges IV are better equipped, I think, than I to talk about these. But I think there is certainly a broader context, certainly dating at least to the Jesuits and their involvement with the slave trade in Asia, and artistic depictions and things like folding screens and paintings and so forth of Blacks as manservants or slaves those kinds of things, to say nothing of primary sources at the time, literary sources or kind of documents from particularly Jesuit scholars and priests who were there to proselytize in terms of their own descriptions of Japanese as well, but in relation to understanding they had of folks of African descent based on their involvement in slave trade and colonization of the New World. So there's a long trajectory to these kinds of depictions. Any Blackness has a long history, certainly, but insofar as the invention of race goes back to medieval Europe, before we're talking about contact in this kind of serious way with Africa in particular, I think that that's something just to kind of keep in mind. I think that one of the things we see in terms of the video, though, is really Besides the random black guy in a purple fedora on the the left-hand side of the screen, you know, strumming along, we can laugh at that. And those kinds of stereotypes have everything to do with a certain type of white American, U.S.-based racism that I think really became popular, I mean, early 20th century, but certainly after the American presence during the occupation in Japan after World War II. When a lot of this imagery and these kinds of depictions of Black folks as entertainers or hustlers and these kinds of negative depictions, but also this fascination around things like musical ability and athletic ability and so forth, I mean, thus all of the musculature and the narrator, the kind of intriloquized narrator in the video, those are actually, think of not even late 19th century, but more kind of 20th century and and mid to late 20th century kind of caricatures. But I think the basic idea plays into these stereotypes, and I think one of the many problems with the video was certainly this lack of historical context. So the idea of these folks, are they dancing? Are they protesting? Or a little bit of both? I mean, given the animation, it's hard to tell. But even the way it's, it's described, trying to make it easier to understand is necessarily also to kind of truncate all of the historical context, and particularly around pushing this narrative of Black indignance, but without talking about white supremacy as part of the structural basis for that righteous anger. To say nothing of of Japanese versions of protest, you know that we're talking about Ampo or Ajinaika, ancient great movements against other types of oppression, or you know, lots of Japanese folks killing thousands of Koreans after the Great Tokyo Earthquake. To say nothing of Aum. So just the ways in which certain narratives of criminality and social unrest circulate, I think, and what types of contexts are deployed at what moments, I think is always interesting and, and worth paying attention to in this kind of context.
0: You mentioned Perry, for example, who comes in 1853, and there's even a demonstration of a kind of blackface menstrual show, yeah, in the, but also the depictions in these folding screens that you were talking about with the Jesuits. Mm-hmm. I was also reminded of the e mission diaries. And you you have these Japanese ambassadors coming over to the U.S. in 1871, 1872, and as they're mm-hmm. traveling around, I think it was Philadelphia in particular, they're talking about, you know, in very disparaging terms, talking about African-Americans in the U.S. And at first mm-hmm. I was saying, well, you know, they're just kind of picking up and maybe repeating this racist rhetoric that they were seeing in the U.S. at the time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as you're talking about, you know, there is this kind of anti-blackness that exists as a result of these depictions. So mm-hmm. maybe they're arriving in the U.S. even with their own preconceived notion.
1: No, no, I think,
0: no, it's, I think Iwakura is certainly a touchstone here. And
1: I think there's a couple of things. I mean, we, we always want to complicate this kind of context, right? So one of the Things to keep in mind, and and Will Bridges and Nina Kornetz in their volume, in their introduction, they talk about this too. But even when you're talking about the Iroquois mission, it, it's not homogenous. Like those different perspectives aren't all on the same page. And so you have folks like Morita, who's saying things like, the blacks are dirty and lazy and ignorant and these kinds of things. And Miyoshi too, and as we saw them, he talks about the ways in which there is a kind of consensus among the Japanese delegation about the fact that only the Japanese and the white folks are those are the best. There's a clear racial hierarchy. I mean, Perry is pre-social Darwinism, but Iwakura is in the heyday of this kind of stuff. And so there's that, but you have Kume who actually has a more nuanced view of Black folks, particularly when they go to DC. Notably, we're still in the era of Jim Crow, but he talks there and it's really quite, um, well, I think approving terms, you know, I think about Black folks that he's encountering there about how industrious they are and what it means for them to be able to show their talents part of the argument that Bridges and Cornets make, I think, which is a good one, is that the Black folks there serve as a proxy for the Japanese, at least on the international stage, because you do have this deep anxiety, particularly post-Perry, of what it means for Japanese folks to prove themselves to be civilized, enlightened, and so forth. And if you read something like the letter to Grant about this, I mean, part of the idea is in some ways, not only to learn the ways of the West, but also to prove that then these Japanese folks are at least the equal, or deserve to be in white eyes, to not be seen inside. Such a disparaging light. And so I think that even among the folks that are on the Wakura mission, you certainly have the more racist understanding, but then you also have this identification. And I think the key really is is when and how folks identify or try to actively disidentify with one another. I mean I think that's one of the things that that's really at play with the blackface that Perry is is engaged in. I mean like one of the things that's so fascinating to me about that whole Thing is, that I mean, so on the one hand, you have blackface minstrelsy being incredibly popular, I mean, in the US particularly, but then, you know, later, you know, worldwide. And of all the things one's going to (laughs) take on this gunboat diplomacy mission, why do you bring an entire troop of so called Ethiopian minstrels? Which is helpful to think about because it helps us then see in this imperialist and white supremacist frame, like how important performance is as a technology of subordination, of domination it's not just about showing off model steam trains and books from the Audubon Society and cannons and scaring the Japanese. I mean, that's part of it too. But the fact that pleasure, that entertainment, that this kind of caricatured Blackness in this completely histrionic form—and I think this is one of the links to something like the video—is pleasurable, is entertaining, and that that's another mode or another vehicle for trying to make an argument explicitly and implicitly for white folks being superior. At this moment, it's really crucial, and I think partially because at this moment in history, I mean, I think it's hard for us to really imagine it because, as you mentioned, there is such this long tradition of of anti-blackness. But at this moment, there's not this kind of clear racial order in the same way that there is in the mid to late 20th century, right? I mean, there's certainly colonialism is is around, but for lots of Japanese folks, it's not necessarily a given particularly if you think about things like Namban, like the depictions of, say, Westerners, I mean, white Westerners, particularly kind of Portuguese folks as the kind of Southern barbarian. You've seen these in scrolls and, and woodcuts and so forth with the kind of goblin, the kind of tengu-like features, the kind of long, kind of sharp nails, the kind of big bulging eyes. So there is this kind of, to say anti-whiteness, I think, would would seem to suggest some kind of parody with anti-blackness, and I don't want to do that, but, but at least a kind of disparagement, a dehumanization that's happening. I think it's important to recognize that in the mid 16th century, and after that, you know, in the 17th, 18th century, the depictions of Westerners as demons, as bumbling, as these really histrionically kind of reduced forms. I think that's that's part of a longer thing that that's not just about dehumanizing Black folks. So I think that that's one of the things that can get lost. I'm not trying to to recuperate that narrative, but I, I think it is. It's worth noticing that that some of these things say just as much about the precarious situation that, that Japan is in vis-a-vis Western nations or the US in particular. So the fetishization of blackness, it's not unlike what happens certainly you know, in Japan's imperial age. Things like the co-prosperity sphere, denigrating other Asians or other races, and this kind of aspiration to an, a kind of honorary whiteness, at least politically, if not phenotypically. Although that too, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's plenty of that as well in the Meiji area in particular. I mean, one of the things that we see is that these, these tropes are enduring partially because to actually think critically about these things draws attention to that persistent client state status and inferiority complex that I think is, is enshrined in, let's say, the in Japanese-U.S. relationship and I think that it has been for a very long time. Not to say that there's not ways to resist that, and there hasn't been all kinds of movements to undo that, but I think that one of the things that happens is that the specter of Blackness becomes really serviceable, to use Toni Morrison's term, as this kind of proxy figure that can be deployed again to to lift Japanese people, at least symbolically, but at Black folks' expense, and to try to put Japanese folks on par with white folks
0: you were talking about some of these enduring tropes, and mm. you know some of these uh, really offensive caricatures in the video. You know the mm. over musculature, the you know histrionic action, things mm. like this. As a result of this, of course, the reaction to the video was was swift. You know, people yeah. called it out as racist right away and offensive. Yeah. Uh, NHK ended up pulling the video, issuing the this apology. very lukewarm apology yeah. <laughs> that, that people said was insincere and inadequate. Mm. Um, and you know, since you've been doing this research on these depictions, you know, I'm. I'm curious what your reaction to the video was in terms of did you see connections between the imagery that you've been looking at and the video or could you describe a little bit more about these enduring tropes?
1: Yeah. No, I think it's it's interesting. I mean, I was part of the reason I referenced earlier in in the in the animation, I mean, as somebody who, who works on performance and is interested in performance studies, that ambiguity between whether those the, the figures are actually stomping and marching or protesting or dancing is, is really important. Obviously one's assessment of the political and of import or or utility of what they're doing changes. It doesn't look like any of the protests I've seen or attended. In the tank top, what it means without masks and so forth, and I think it's convenient partially because part of the video very clearly is is about amplifying as the kind of scary black man trope as a way, frankly, to distract or deflect from any kind of real discussion about long-standing inequalities and white supremacy more broadly. I think in terms of the the actual tropes, a good place if teachers or scholars are interested are trying to find this. I mean, so there's the MIT Visualizing Cultures Project, which is a really great resource. And and if you look at the, the woodblock print that depicts the Ethiopian minstrel's performance, the blackface performance that we we talked about before, so everybody's synchronized and these and kind of blackface with their their legs kicked out extended. There's a banjo player too, I think, and there's certainly a link that can be drawn between those, just in terms of of what it means to show black body in motion. First of all, if you want to go a bit deeper, right? There's those three videos that came out: the Amy Cooper video, the Ahmad Arbery video, and then the George Floyd video. And interestingly, in the George Floyd one in particular, what's so Heartbreaking and such a testament to the ravages of this corrupt system is just the stillness. And I think the fact of Chauvin's knee on his neck, on on George Floyd's neck, as Floyd dies, is something that stands in such stark contrast to this animated video. So the, the character just of using animation in and of itself, as opposed to, say, video of any of the protests or some kind of snippet of the video of Chauvin and so forth, that's what's actually really interesting to me because that actually speaks to a much larger investment. And this idea of blackness around mobility in this caricatured form, in this entertaining form—the kind of ventriloquized voice of this yakuza-esque, rolling the hard R's, and all these other things—as opposed to folks who are speaking incredibly eloquently about the nature of black death and so forth. I mean, I think that that's that's one of the things that's interesting. But but just to kind of draw a parallel between these two videos. The, the lack of motion, or that unarmed Black folks in particular are being killed, seems like a narrative that NHK is particularly uninterested in trying to play up. And so in that regard, I think there's something about portraying this caricatured motion in the 1850s depictions and now that has everything to do with denying this notion of Black people's humanity. The more you move, and the more one moves in, quote, unruly ways, the easier it is to not take seriously one's demands. And I think that this is, this is a part of a larger and longer discussion about respectability politics, particularly in terms of civil rights era, these kind of signs saying, "I am a man," as opposed to a cartoon of a guy with a guitar and a purple fedora and a, a sad change purse lamenting black unemployment rates without talking about about the structural racism that, that demands that kind of social condition.
0: As you were saying, you know the point of the video, as flawed and problematic as it was, was mm-hmm. the goal or the purpose was to inform the domestic Japanese audience of some of these reasons for the Black Lives Matter protests, even if they didn't really delve into as, as much of the historical conditions.
1: Allegedly, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but I think I think that's a the thing. It is, there is something about it. I think to some people, it was actually a sincere attempt to to be efficient and to be economical in one's presentation of the issues. Yeah.
0: So we might say that you know this is an attempt, to, even if it was meant to be sincere, mm. you know it was kind of fraught with these historical legacies of anti-blackness in Japan. Some of the things that we've been talking about so far. Mm. So before we you know we were saying some of these depictions they're representing or illustrating attitudes of anti-blackness outside mm. of the world where the images were produced, and then how they shape attitudes in Japan. So mm. could we say the same about this NHK video? You know what does yeah. it reveal to us about yeah. misperceptions yeah. of Black Lives Matter or yeah enduring anti-blackness in Japan.
1: I think the emphasis is on enduring. One of the things that I was struck by is, and this is part of the controversy, I mean, besides the backlash against someone like Naomi Osaka, and, but was something like BTS donating a million dollars, that kind of nexus culturally of what's going on, what does it mean for K-pop groups who owe their choreography and style and vocality to, I mean, particularly African-American cultural forms. Putting a thumb in the eye of, of these more kind of nationalist Japanese conservative folks by supporting this, this cause, I think, says something about the ways in which a certain fetishism, let's just call it, with all with apologies to BTS fans, but blackness also then becomes a way to resist a certain type of supremacist narrative. Part of the reason I'm doing the slavery project is actually to first of all understand like how Japanese slavery, which has been around for a millennium at least relates to this the shift that happens, I mean, with the emergence of mercantile capitalism and how how racism is so malleable. So again, long before there was anti-blackness, there was this kind of anti-Jewish, anti-Roma, right? I mean, in Europe, right? And, And and there's a way in which these tropes then, as it happens, are forced onto with imperialism, colonialism, genocide, and different types of slave trade. They mutate in order to accommodate these different bodies, and there is something about, I think, particularly in that post-Perry moment, where there's this investment on the part of Japanese folks where those kind of stereotypes that used to be used for Nambang or Europeans start to be supplanted, partially due to the kind of things that we see in things like the Urquida Mission and these, these kinds of accounts, but also because of the forced importation on the part of the U.S. of American culture, I mean, minstrelsy being one of those things. And that's also very deliberate. Which is to say that there then becomes a kind of a shared investment in anti-blackness that can bring white folks and Japanese folks together. At least in that Meiji context, it's more complicated than that. It's not. It's not. That's. It's not that simple. But, but certainly, and I think folks, particularly like John Russell and his research, has, has kind of tracked these things. That when you have things like Sambo toothpaste and so forth, like these things that are coming out. I mean, you know, rest in peace Aunt Jemima. As corporations try to get rid of these legacies, but in Japan, these were exported with a vengeance. Particularly as the American presence in Japan was solidified through American imperialism. So a conversation that it seems like some people have been having for a long time i think that we're more aware of it now in asian studies and japanese studies because of the recent protests and and i think there's a lot of, of good sincere effort and you know also some pretty insincere effort around recognizing some of these issues right now i mean it's it's stylish but i think there's also there's a, an opportunity right now to talk seriously about racism within the field of japanese studies in particular i think it's hard to really reckon with this but we have to understand that I mean, the field of Japanese studies is constitutively a, a racist field, and and that's in terms of the logistics of, of how it came about, particularly as, as formed in the United States, and particularly in terms of what types of people were granted the capacity to become translators or not of Japanese during World War II in a segregated military. And so some of the narratives that have become, I think, hackneyed, but and also therefore really powerful in Japan they don't come from nowhere. They they come from a racist United States that's using a racist military to occupy a foreign country. My basic point is that there are lots of folks around the world <laughs> that are invested in the dehumanization of not just Black folks, but I think as, as part and parcel of not just maintaining a self-image or a national image or a narrative of progress or civilization and enlightenment, and much smarter folks than, than I have, have talked about these, these things. But I think about Denise the De Silva's work or Sylvia Winter's work along these lines. This moment of a kind of more global investment in anti-blackness, partially as the linchpin of racial capitalism, but but also I think that psychic economy that folks like like Tony Morris in particular talk so much about. Once slavery ends, the ways in which anti-blackness has to permeate all of these other forms, particular media forms, so as to maintain not just a fiction of whiteness or Japaneseness for that matter. But also to really always deflect away from these deep insecurities about what it means to, in fact, really be uncivilized, or to not have earned the one's kind of rightful place at the head of the table, or these kinds of things. And I think that's that's why, at this moment, much in the same way that in moments of recession we see and we're seeing now in the United States, but globally as well, the resurgence of white nationalism along with the retrenchment of austerity politics, and people realize how the kind of devastation that the neoliberal capitalism in particular has, has wrought, and that one's whiteness will not save them, or one's japanese or that this kind of overwork, <laughs> working harder in a frita society will not save you. I think this is exactly where these narratives become so useful, but then also therefore so pernicious. Racism is complicated. <laughs> and it's. I think that part of what keeps me optimistic at this moment is the kinds of conversations that people have have been provoked to have, whether folks want to or not often. I think that's a good thing. I think that the the way that these conversations will continue to develop within the discipline of Japanese studies, I think is, is exciting to me, even as, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> you know, like I'm, both, I'm energized and tired at the same point. And I'm sure many of my colleagues of various races, but particular folks of color, I think in, in the field are, are feeling this both as, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I think as a moment of possibility to have real kind of conversations and to remedy these kind of racist legacies that pervade the discipline. I think that that's really great. I think that as a teaching moment, as a text to teach, I'm really grateful to NHK for making that terrible, bigoted video, because because that means when we teach these introduction to Japanese culture classes and talk about some of these lineages and the recurrence, some of these tropes, we can historicize in a way that that makes these kinds of connections. And I think that that's really, it's really helpful. People keep asking me how I'm doing and conversations like this, I think, give me an opportunity to reflect on on that. And I think I'm still really optimistic about what it means to be able to read closely some of these cultural texts and redeploy them, take them apart, dismantle them, but also take them seriously. And so I would say maybe as, as a closing thing, you know, we can laugh at these things for being ridiculous, but I think that there's that kind of critical work of being able to see deeper and to, to think more broadly about these connections and how they relate to these larger global systems of inequality is really important and so i'm not expecting nhk to do that <laughs> like, like clearly that's not that's not the nhk bellowick but but uh, i think that insofar as as you and hopefully lots of the listeners are at least intrigued by if that task if not invested in it and then, then that's uh, that's a great thing
0: i'm tristan gruno and this has been japan on the record the podcast for scholars of japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news hosted and produced by tristan gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.